Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Miller's Law, a veteran-founded and run law firm. Miller's Law is giving back to the community that gives so much by making an incredible special offer to our listeners. For the next 30 days, Miller's Law is offering veterans and first responders a family will and power of attorney for only $299. Typically, a will in POA can cost over $2,000. That's a $1,700 savings. This offer is a meaningful way to say thank you for your service for all veterans and first responders. To take advantage of this amazing gift, don't wait. Go to millerslaw.com, M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com, or email them at info at millerslaw.com. If you prefer to phone, you can call toll-free 1-888-855-5547. That's 1-888-855-5547. Don't delay. Do it today. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Today's episode is a little bit different, and I'm very, very careful about trying to stay within the scope of trauma recovery. However, every now and then I'll drift a little bit. I drifted a little bit uh, for this one because he is a veteran and a veteran's advocate, a social worker who had an incident that um, was portrayed in the media in a way that has really wrecked his life. So Anyway, I have David Lavoie on. I wanted to say in the, the intro here that uh, Dave has a couple of dispar- <laughs> disparaging opinions uh, about Americans, which I spoke to him uh, off air about. And um, I just want all my American friends, which is like a quarter of my audience, to know that I do not have any such disparaging uh, opinions uh, that that he shared on the show. And I also would like to apologize for not correcting those opinions um, in real time during the recording of the show. But I did have a conversation with him off air. And anyway, <laughs> here we go. It was, uh, it's still a good conversation. And it was an important one to have. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your service, Dave. Um, You've been an ar- an armored guy. You've been around the uh, <laughs> been around the CF and different armored corps. Where'd you start? Well, I started my uh, career at the age of sixteen with the First Reserves and um, Reserve Unit in London, and then liked it so much um, that I went regular force with Eighth uh, Canadian Hussars and went to Germany with them. Came back when I came back um, from Germany. I was um, reposted to the Royal Canadian Dragoons in Petawawa. Well, so how long were you in, all told? Over 13 years. Well, that's a good long bit. Thank you for your service, Dave. You just like wearing a black hat, or was it the tanks? Which, which one was it? Well, while I was in Germany, I was with the um, Recce Squadron, and which uh, gave me a... a 
uh, pound-the-ground aspect and use your black Cadillacs, as uh, some military people will uh, <laughs> know and understand. Um, so um, it was the whole gamut. Um, while I was in Germany, I also was part of the Boeslager team, which was the armored recce um, NATO competition. And um, I was quite the athlete while in there. Plus, I played for I played rugby in Germany and uh, represented the Canadian Armed Forces in Europe for that and uh, did a lot of stuff. So um, even though the, I was Armored Corps, um, I, I really grasped the whole aspects of the Armored Corps from uh, being a tanker right to recce and being uh, on patrols. Well, you can go hardcore or you can go armored core. A lot of people choose armored, so that's all right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the most <laughs> and, and for anybody who isn't uh, military combat arms, uh, I was infantry, he was armored, so we get to tease each other a little bit. That's the way she goes. <laughs> hardcore or armored core. Um, now, you started at the age of 16. That's really young. It means you had to get a note from your parents to do it. What was your drive? Like, what was in your head at the age of 16 where you said, yeah, I'm going to join the reserves? Well, my father was a Korean vet, and uh, I think as a young young individual, um, I saw that I wanted to help people. I was always, like, I was involved in scouts, cubs, um, even as a, a leader in Sea Scouts, I, I always wanted to strive to help someone. I always wanted to take it to that next level. And I guess taking it to that next level was joining the military to help uh, those that aren't enabled to help themselves is the whole concept. Um, signing that blank check to say, I'll be there for you no matter what, and putting your life on the line because – of people being oppressed throughout their whole life and not given the equal opportunities or chances that they should be afforded. And speaking of oppression, I'm going to ask you a question that I really don't want to ask because I don't want to know the answer, but I have to ask it anyway because I need to know the answer. During your time in the military, in the Armored Corps, you're a First Nations guy. Um, were you treated with respect or did were people calling you chief and all that type of crap? Well, it's, it's funny you would... Uh, uh, mentioned that that comment of chief. Uh, I've had that throughout uh, my whole military career. I was uh, told by an officer not to. Uh, why did we give him a knife? He's going to scalp us while we sleep. Um, put him, give him this shit job because uh, he's just a dirty Indian. Um, I've had numerous comments throughout my military career, and understanding that. That's the way it was. It's, it doesn't mean it was right. Um, I've had it before I was um, growing up, um, before the military, and I had it after. Um, where even when I went back to school as a First Nations person, um, there was a discussion at one time where someone said, well, if you want to know about First Nations, why don't you go to a First Nations school? And I had a professor insult the culture, my culture, and all I asked was for an apology, and she refused. And the director of the school said that he apologizes on her on her behalf, and that it was wrong. And to me, that's like your neighbor apologizing for someone down the street. It's just not. Um, it's not good enough. Was the racism that you exper- experienced in the military worse or? 
just different from what you did for what you experienced outside of the military? I think when I was in the military, um, it was bad. Um, you sucked it up um, and you put up with it. But I think when I came to civilian life and, and went to um, university, I expected more out of them because they should be more informed of what real history happened and real oppression. And I, I went through as a social worker. So I expected social workers to understand and be advocates like I was and am in life. And I was greatly disappointed. What you keep hearing from, uh, whether it be in the military or on the job site, what you keep hearing is, oh, no, they, 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 they're laughing along with us. Heck, they're the ones telling all the jokes themselves. This, you always hear this. And it, it's a way of saying, well, you know, it's just good fun. We're, this is just how we show love for each other. But what was that experience for you? Was it just good fun for you, or was it uh, hateful and you wish it would stop, or something in between? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, there's a, in any organization, be it the military or any, you're always going to have some type of banter back and forth. Yeah. Um, for example, when we started the show, uh, you could go hardcore or armor core, like that banter is not personally directed at you. You always had competitions between squadrons and regiments and battalions and regiments and squadrons. Like, all the, that, that's healthy competition, healthy banter. There's a difference between healthy and then there's, then there's outright ignorance well, the and di- racism. The difference from my end, and please correct me if uh, you have a different perspective, but the difference is respect. It's, the difference is what is behind it when you say it. If what is behind it is hateful, well, then that comes out w- with that tone. If what's behind it is with love and brotherhood and a sign of trust, actually. Because in the military, if you're not ribbing each other, you don't trust each other. If you're not ribbing each other, clearly you're not connected and, and you're not comfortable with each other. But if um, you can light each other up, and and do it with a smile, and it makes each other laugh, then it's good. That's what it's supposed to be, and it, it's good for a sense of brotherhood. But if they're not laughing on both sides, it ain't funny. Well, and, and I agree with you on that aspect. Uh, you know what? There, like I said, there's healthy banter, and when when you know someone doesn't mean it out of hatred, or want to do you any harm or put you because they want to feel more powerful than you, there's a difference. They're always, you're always going to have individuals that um, have their own personal biases and perspectives. You're always going to have individuals that are going to push the envelope. You're always going to have people in the military that get promoted, not because of their military skills, but because of their ability to play, i.e., hockey. Yeah, that's I right. see many times um, people were promoted because they're good hockey players, not good soldiers. And I had one time where I had uh, a master corporal with me. He was a hockey player. He was he did, he was, he didn't hide it that he was promoted because he was a, a really good hockey player. But in the field, he didn't know his um, what was left or what was right and how to do proper uh, tactics. So 
and I'll give you one example. In the Armored Corps, we have armored, uh, we have competitions for gunnery competitions. When I was in Petawawa, before being deployed to uh, Germany for that four-year stint, we had an, a gunnery competition, Ramshead. And I placed second in the Corps. My, one of my other guys in the regiment placed first. You would think because I placed second, I would be put into troops, I would be rewarded or recognized and for my skills and my abilities. But it didn't seem to be the, what happened. It, it was like, yep, we should, technically, yep, you were a fit soldier, you were good at what you do, you're deport, um, you, were, you did everything right, but it didn't seem I could progress any farther than anyone else. Um, I, when I was in Germany, I could run Ring Road in large Germany, which was 10 kilometers, approximately 10 kilometers, in about 32, 33 minutes. So I was a very fast runner. Hang on, Dave just lost you. It seemed to me that um, I could never get um, rewarded, and my career took a hit because, and they weren't hiding it, because I was First Nations. Now today they uh, they hide their true feelings and say what they're going to do, but they don't do what they're going to say. So what years uh, were you in the military? When did it, uh, what was the range? I was uh, from 90, sorry, 80 to 93. From from 1980 to 1994. 94, sorry, 94. To 94. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And um, because the culture, of course, in general, in the general public has changed a lot since the 80s. But still, I mean, you were coming on the heels of some of the most storied veterans of all time who were First Nations. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about Tommy Prince, who was a Patricia and a member of, of the Devil's Brigade. Uh, we have parade squares and drill halls named after the guy and is seen as uh, probably the greatest soldier of all time, regardless of regiment. And... It is so sad that even after uh, somebody like Tommy Prince went through and with, with all that immense respect, which no other soldier um, has ever received, there's no other soldier that is, has parade squares and drill halls named after him. Like, that doesn't exist except for Tommy Prince, who was um, a First Nations man. So... Despite all of that, it didn't translate to the other regiments, and you were still treated that the, the way that you were from uh, through the eighties up to ninety four. And I am sorry that that uh, was your experience, Dave. That's the shits. You know, and one thing I would like to add, and I really appreciate those comments, is that he was not even allowed to go in a legion during his time. Even as a soldier, he was not allowed to go even in a legion. And that's not very long ago. Understanding that the last residential school closed 
1996. And if we look at when we were born or when we went to school, the probability of people my generation going to a residential school is quite high. And I'm also understanding research has indicated that people left residential schools with maybe a grade six or seven level education. Which is um, so, kind of the going rate in the Hutterite colonies. Uh, they t- Absolutely. They quite often, um, by choice, and at six or seven, the idea being, um, like my Uncle Red, who's long gone now, but uh, he was around six or seven for uh, for grade level before he got out and went to work. But the idea was, if you can read and write, what more do you need? And <laughs> there is some truth to that, I believe. I, I tend to agree with that in some ways. But it is incredibly limiting as far as options. You no longer have any choices because those choices are made for you based on your education. And and that's that's the problem with it. Yes, I, I agree. But the only way we're going to uh, fix it is to acknowledge and validate we have a problem and then go from there. Do you think it's gotten better? Um, like in the military and society in general? I mean, your experience from the 80s up to 94... That's that's pretty bad. Like that's not okay. Uh, but do you think it's better, or do you think it's still happening today in today's military? I, I don't want to be negative towards a, towards any system. Um, some might say it's not changing fast enough. Some people will indicate it hasn't changed at all. They've just become better at. Um, covering up what, what, what technically did not happen or does happen, but we don't talk about it. I think all of us can, all of us that have served in the military can narrate an example of where they saw someone being ridiculed, put down because of the choice of of where they are going and what they've done, that choice. Do I think it's getting better? I think it is. Um, when would we have had a, ma- a minister of national defense apologize for all the sexual abuse that has happened in the past? We have never would have had, had that in the past. So it is changing, um, probably not at a rate that we uh, want, but it is changing. This is a conversation I've had in the past on this show uh, with Paulette Poitras, and I was getting the same answer, which is so disappointing to me. Because from my perspective as the insider white guy with a shaved head, <laughs> you know, um, the type of humor that was tolerated in in the days that we're talking about, 80s to the to the mid-90s, that type of humor is no longer tolerated. Quite the opposite. You know, if you're to crack any of the jokes that, you know, and I used to enjoy them. So my own evolution, maybe I'm transposing my own evolution onto society and maybe they they haven't caught up. I don't know. But for sure, the, the types of, the type of humor, whether it be about anybody who's non-white or LBGT, any of the above, 
that type of humor is just not allowed anymore. Um, I don't know of any circles where you can be uh, throwing around uh, derogatory humor at anybody, not on the comedy circuit, not on, and, and not around the campfire when, when, when nobody else is listening. So because I personally don't see it, it's, um, I'm hoping that that is a reflection of the rest of society. It certainly is the case uh, in film and radio, but I, I hope that the experience is getting better for, for people like yourself, Dave. But moving on, um, you took your experiences, and what didn't change about you was you still wanted to help people. And that is just a part of who you are, and that translated into social work. So moving on to social work, um, uh, tell me about that journey. So when I left the military in the mid-90s, I would say I fell through the cracks. I was disabled. I did have an injury from a tour. And when it went to um, Veterans Affairs and get it assessed, Go ahead. I was just going to ask you, which tour, Dave? Somalia. Um, when I when I returned, um, they would only talk about my uh, one injury and not the rest of them. So at the end of the day, I fell through the cracks. In the 2000s, I reintegrated with a few military friends that I had met while in the military, and they told me that I qualified for voc rehab, a vocational rehab program. Right. Um, that was through Veterans Affairs. So um, I took advantage of it and fought my way through the system to be able to get authorized to go to Western University to obtain a degree. Um, I indicated I wanted to do social work because prior to that I had uh, I was a volunteer with OSIS to running groups and helping people. So helping others has always been a significant part in my life and advocating for those that um, were unable and helping those that were didn't have the strength to stand up and fight for themselves. And, so, oh, the, uh, I'm sorry, and the irony of where we are here today, which is why I brought you on the show. Let, let's let's just jump into that part, Dave. What happened? So, I was at Costco, and um, because of my injuries, I'm technically, by Veterans Affairs standard, 126% disabled. Okay. And I have a handicap um, sticker. So, I was parked in the first handicap spot, and because there was a lot of crowds, my anxiety was high, and... And so I had done my shopping with my partner and my partner and I loaded the stuff in the vehicle and we were sitting there waiting for traffic to go back and forth. When this vehicle basically block corner blocks my left front into there. So I waited some time and I'm looking around and I don't see anyone getting in their vehicle or ready to pull out of the Costco. So I wait, and then I start 
honking on my horn saying, guys, there's nothing there. Move on. But this person was adamant that they saw someone get in the vehicle and move. So I started honking my horn. During this time, it had elapsed over five minutes. So I got out of the vehicle and started banging on their side window. And it was tinted. And I say, move your vehicle. Then they wouldn't recognize, they wouldn't roll down the window saying what they're doing there or anything, but they continued to block me in. as what I call that stare, deer in the headlight stare. So I leaned over to the front window, banged on the front window, saying, move your car. You're blocking me. No reaction, nothing. So I opened up the side door and said, move your car. Then the, the daughter of the father there gets out of the, the rear passenger, rear driver's side, comes around and say, leave my father alone. He's old. I indicated, I'm old too. Right? And then um, the car finally moves after about a minute, but I tried to get back in my vehicle and she was blocking me, blocking my path. So we had the vehicle and one's on my right, my truck on the left, and she's right in front of me. So I'm waiting for the car to move so I can get around her because if I go near her, I'm going to, it's an assault. So the car finally moves, and then within seconds, the father gets out. Within seconds after that, the husband gets, her husband gets out, and they both come at me, like, with fists raised. And I turn to the right, take a couple of steps, and I have the father on one side of me and the husband in front of me wanting to fight. So it was just a basic parking lot fight, yelling at each other. No one had touched anyone or anything like that. And then what happened was um, we broke up. I noticed that they had American plates, and I said, Americans, go back to your country because I'm sick and tired of I, I, during that week, I had been cut off by three different Americans, you know, and just they're totally, everyone, I'm not saying all of them, but most of them are rude when they come to Canada. They have that um, privileged perspective. And got in my truck, left, and next thing I know, I'm being notified days later by the London City Police that I'm being charged with assault and that I had said racist remarks. And the only reason they're doing this is because it had blown up in the media. And she indicated that I touched her father when I hadn't. And my partner was right beside in the vehicle. She says, I didn't see you touch anyone. So because the family was Muslim and, they had, and the brother of the woman is a lawyer, they charged me with assault, and they went on the media and called me a racist and that I told them to go back to their country because they were Muslim and this and all that, and I got blown up in fortune. And, and they even reported me in the media as a white male. They didn't get my side of the story. They didn't everything. Even the police had indicated the only reason that they were progressing with charges was because it blew up in the media. If it, and they said normally they would not press. This is just a normal parking lot argument. That's it. So since then, 
we've had to try to correct people by saying, one, I'm an indigenous veteran. Two, I have worked my whole life helping people and not only people but veterans get benefits and maneuver the system to be labeled a racist. And since then, I've lost uh, employment <clears throat> as a social worker. And people have tried to contact me on social media and said comments. And I've had numerous um, comments of being called a racist and that um, I should no longer be a social worker <clears throat> and I should quit and I should all this because of one blip and one misreporting. We all get in arguments. And if people are disrespectful, yeah. It's because you're blocking me in for over five minutes. So was you're there not what, 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 that you are or doing anything about it? In hindsight, was there a car broken down, or I mean, it's unimaginable to me that somebody would block, be in their car, and keep you blocked for five. Like that's an extraordinarily long amount of time. Incredibly ignorant. So was there something else that was going on? Was the car broken down, or did you find out? No, they parked there so they could find a parking spot. Okay. So they they didn't have I, to be... I just saw one it, comment asking me if I could possibly back up. I was blocked in. I could not move. I feel that um, I'm a very good driver and that if I could move around there or maneuver away from there, I would have. It's just I couldn't move anywhere. And I didn't want to move my vehicle forward because people would take that as an aggressive act. So in that situation, you simply didn't have any options other than to sit there at the will of somebody else who, who was holding you up for nothing but selfish reasons. All they wanted was to sit there and wait until they had their par parking spot and they didn't give a crap about uh, anybody else. Was that the situation? Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't mind waiting two or three minutes if someone acknowledges, validates, but people in today's society, I don't think, I think we're in a hurry to go nowhere. And regrettably, that we don't see what we're doing in the meantime and that how we're affecting people. Um, I know if I was to let someone in or someone lets me in while driving, I reach out my arm and wave and thank them or re, um, lift my hand or acknowledge, thank you for letting me in. And that common driver courtesy, especially during this pandemic and the restrictions that are going to be coming forward even more because of variants. Yes, we have to be more courteous of all that. I'm not saying that I was um, was not in the wrong. Absolutely. I should have stayed in my vehicle. Hindsight. But I also expected that if I banged on their window and said move, they would have rolled down their window and said yeah, just give me a second here and, and validate and and just be courteous and just acknowledge what they're doing is wrong. 
Yeah, just basic courtesy. Basic courtesy is right. I think as a society, we've lost that. Um, I think some people feel if they don't turn their head and acknowledge it, it doesn't happen. So if someone cuts you off and you pull up the side and say, hey, you cut me off, they just keep looking forward and they don't turn their head left and right. They know they did wrong instead of just acknowledging that's yeah, a I matter of personal responsibility. Um, yeah. So tell me about the the media coverage on this. Like, uh, how much coverage did this get um, slandering you this? and uh, really soiling like your I name? Said, this coverage has gone throughout the country. And so much that they, they connected my incident to the terrorist act that happened in London in June. Jesus and Christ. And put them both in the same ballpark. So if your listeners are not familiar with what happened in June, um, a teenager with a pickup truck ran down a, a Muslim family at a corner. And it was declared, which I found out recently, as a terrorist act. So they linked my incident in with that supposedly terrorist act. And so what happens is once you're put into the mix to get out of it is hard. I've had people from out west call me. I've had people from out east call me. I've had people in the Toronto area from London and and ask me for my side of the story. And when I tell them my side of the story, they say that's a lot different than what happened. So when they, even when this blew up, the media did not take the chance, take the time to reach out to me, and that's disturbing. And it comes down to resp- responsible reporting, and especially in this day and age that we look at fake news. Well, one people would say fake news is not getting the full picture and all the perspectives no it seems that the news yeah, is uh any opportunity to create division uh, to show us as a hateful uh culture any opportunity to do that they love it for whatever reason if it bleeds it leads and racism against um muslims is uh is a hot topic so they decided to to blow that up and yet any racism towards First Nations, it's not mentioned. Uh, and I, I can't think of a demographic that receives more racism to this day and dangerous racism uh, than First Nations people. But for whatever reason, the media cares about First Nations the least and everybody else um, more so. And I don't know why that is. I don't get it. Well, and I... And I take it right back to our education system. If we don't educate people with the facts of everything that has happened and everything that still happens, um, people are going to come up with their own perspectives and own decisions of how they're going to treat people. And I'm going to give an example of recently the um, lawsuit against the federal government for education for children because they were deeply underfunded by the federal government, First Nations. People feel that we've given First Nations enough money to do 
what they need to do. We shouldn't be giving them any more money. They've got, they've, they have received a free ride. When, when a First Nations walks in for a job, all of a sudden it's, there are labels attached to that First Nation person. There is research in the system that shows that First Nations are not as smart as non-First Nations. And that was based on research done in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when people were coming out of residential schools with grade 6 or 7 education, which makes sense. Yes, when someone's leaving high school with a grade 6 or grade 7 level and you have non-Indigenous people having high school, proper grade 12 and 13, of course they're going to test you. It's sad. We have so many communities without fresh water. But a non-Indigenous town goes without fresh water, it's on national news. It's, it's, it's the topic. And I'll give an example of uh, quite a long time ago, Walkerton. And there were charges laid when there was unpotable water given to the townspeople. This was blown up in all of news media. But we still, to this day, have First Nations that don't have fresh water. And especially there's First Nations in Manitoba where they're just miles away from a fresh water source and they're not allowed to tap into it. It's sad. Where we're at right now, uh, Dave, there's legal action being taken. Um, so tell me about what uh, Philip Miller and Miller's Law is doing for you right now. Well, when this all happened, I didn't know which way to go, which way to turn, because essentially the first word out there is gospel within society. Luckily, someone said to contact Philip Miller, and he's ex-military, and he takes care of veterans and all that. So when I talked to um, Philip and told him my side of the story, he said, I can't believe that this is horrible. This is a total injustice. So I, even though... Um, People say, oh, don't worry, the charges will go away. It's it's not that easy because I've already been labeled a racist. And he wants to create lawsuits against um, individuals that have basically messed up my career. Um, he feels confident that we're going to win it, win the case, but at the same time, at what point? The damage is done. It's sad. Well, the um, damages very well could be lifetime damages. Uh, in the States, there's Kyle Rittenhouse and um, uh, the one before him, and the the damages are for life. So, you know, depending on how much coverage it, it, it gets. But anyway, I am sorry that that has happened to you, Dave, and I appreciate you being on today and sharing your side of the story because that's not an opportunity that's been given to you very much but i know that um uh, our friends at miller's law are going to be sharing this particular episode and doing what we can to get your side of the story out and it seems to me that you've been very transparent uh you're not pretending that uh, you made the best choices in that parking lot that day but it's also not worthy of the backlash that you've received um 
the punishment does not fit the crime. You didn't commit a crime. Some poor judgment, perhaps, but um, uh, who is not guilty of that? Show me one person that hasn't let their temper get a little bit the better of them. Uh, You're not going to find a person. You know, it it happens to everybody, and I've uh, been in 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 a similar situation myself. Um, either way, you don't deserve what's come down the pipe, uh, the backlash that you've received. There's no way that you deserve that. So thank you. I think as a, I think as a society, we have to be very leery of what we say, because I don't think when we say something, we see what the domino effect is. And especially when we live in a culture that's very hypersensitive about, um, culture and we're willing to cancel someone or cancel someone's life or opportunities for that individual based on one false accusation without finding out the truth yeah it's not right but hopefully this uh will help at least a little bit and it's in the hands of of, uh philip miller and miller's law right now so we'll see where that goes and hopefully it'll go in the right way because what the press has done to you is not okay. And the only way to straighten them out, unfortunately, is through litigation. Um, Again, that's happening in the States in various different um, ways. And the precedents that are set in the States actually do matter up here, although Canadian precedents are better. But we need more and more of them. we got to get them to... to back off and at least be fair and not malign people. It's not okay. But Dave, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank and, you again. And thank you for your continued work in the veteran community. We didn't really get into that a whole lot, but that is the social work that, you, that you're doing, uh, serving veterans and continuing to try to, to help others. That's just who you are. So thanks for being on today, Dave. And stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Miller's Law, a veteran-founded and run law firm. Miller's Law is giving back to the community that gives so much by making an incredible special offer to our listeners. For the next 30 days, Miller's Law is offering veterans and first responders a family will and power of attorney for only $299. Typically, a will in POA can cost over $2,000. That's a $1,700 savings. This offer is a meaningful way to say thank you for your service for all veterans and first responders. To take advantage of this amazing gift, don't wait. Go to millerslaw.com, M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com, or email them at info at millerslaw.com. If you prefer to phone, you can call toll-free 1-888-855-5547. That's 1-888-855-5547. Don't delay. Do it today. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Now I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. 
Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.